in the 100-acre wood, in the 100-acre wood, there are many, many characters. Um, there are many characters. And let's be honest, they are characters. There's Winnie the Pooh, and he is a bear of little brain, right? But he is friendly and helpful. Some people are shaking their heads, right? So Winnie the Pooh is kind of the ringleader of them all. And then, of course, there's Piglet. And Piglet is timid and quiet, and he's overcome by fear, and he sees himself as small and helpless. Some of us are Piglets. Some of us are Winnie the Poohs. Then there's Kanga and Rue. Kanga is a calm, funny, and reassuring voice. She's patient, and she's concerned about her friends. And her son, Rue, is the stereotypical inquisitive, why is Tigger mad? Why is Pooh going like he, why, 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 why? And that's Rue, right? He has this inquisitiveness to him. And then, of course, there's Rabbit at the head of the table there. Rabbit is reliable and dependable and irritable. Right? Some of us are rabbit, right? <laughs> and rabbit is irritable, especially when the plans and order are thrown out the window and it's chaos. Rabbit gets really barky at that point. And then there's Tigger. Tigger is extroverted and adventurous and overly confident. Every single single thing that Tigger encounters. That's what Tiggers do best. Math. That's what Tiggers do best. Sending a man to the moon. That's what Tiggers do best. Like, there is no lack of confidence that Tigger has. And then, of course, there's Owl. And you can barely see him in the back. Owl, the, the mentor and teacher, but he can ramble a lot. And he tells stories. And, and the truth of the matter is that Owl is often wrong about things. He'll, he'll be absolutely pontificating about the and he's just wrong and that's Al. of course my favorite character of the bunch is eeyore eeyore is glum and sarcastic and a pessimist although if eeyore were here he would say no i'm just a realist you know he would say it that way and and so i know some of you identify right and you you say yes i'm just i'm just seeing things as they are but eeyore fundamentally believes that He's unimportant. And I think if Eeyore had a therapist or a doctor, he would probably be diagnosed as being clinically depressed. I want to read some of the characteristics of being clinically depressed. Fatigue, low or no energy, check. Feelings of worthlessness, check. Indecisiveness, Eeyore, what are we going to do? Doesn't matter, right? Check, <laughs> check. Um, diminished interest in pleasure in any kind of activity, check. Uh, feeling slowed down. Come on, that's Eeyore. That's Eeyore. Um, there's, other, uh, there's other symptoms. Uh, uh, loss of energy almost every day. Uh, restlessness, being uh, slowed down. Inability to sleep, insomnia, or excessive sleep. Um, problems with concentration or making decisions. Now, some of us in this room are Eeyores in terms of our personality. We just, we're a little bit of a Debbie Downer pessimist part of us, or we, as we would say, realists. And then some of us are like Eeyore because we're, we're depressed, okay? And, and if you are depressed and if you're part of Team Jesus, that can be a shaming thing for you because you have in the back of your mind, if you grew up in church, that Jesus promised joy. And I've got what down in my heart? 
joy. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Okay? And so you may be depressed and there may be shame that comes with that. And remember, shame is a very powerful emotion but can become part of our identity when we allow shame to tell us who we are. And shame will uh, uh, lead us to the conclusion that we are fundamentally flawed and, and, and unlovable and broken in a significant way. And so shame, by the way, says two things to us on a regular basis. You are not enough. You're not good enough, fast enough, pretty enough. You're not enough. And if you can manage to kick that to the curb and get some freedom, shame will then ask the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Okay? And if you struggle with depression, you may feel a little bit of shame about it because of this passage from John. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Now, if Eeyore... We're here today. Eeyore would probably say, well, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. I sure am happy. (laughs) Right? Okay. So if I could say something to you today, it would be this. No matter how you feel, no matter how dark things seem, I want you to refuse to give up on hope. I want you to refuse to give up on hope. And I want to talk about that, and and I want to work through that through the passage of John chapter 15. So what am I not going to tell you today? I'm not going to tell you today, well, just put a smile on your face and be happy. Don't worry. You know, I'm not going to say that to you. I'm also not going to say to you, well, you can't be a Christian and also be depressed. They're mutually exclusive. I'm not going to say that either, okay? Uh, But I am going to ask you to trust God. And I'm going to ask you and beg and implore you not to lose hope. And so we're going to wade into John chapter 15 together. And so if you brought a paper paper Bible, you can turn there. Uh, But we're in John chapter 15. And John chapter 15 is part of several chapters in John that theologians call the upper room discourses. Really, it's just a fancy way of saying Jesus' last conversation with his friends. Okay, And so his last conversations with with his friends are recorded in John 14, 15, 16, 17. And so let's get right into it. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Now the vine and the vineyard is an old metaphor for Israel. It's an old metaphor for Israel. If you were to go into the temple of Jesus' day and stand in the first part and stare at the curtain that would be the Holy of Holies, this purple curtain with embroidered flowers on it, above the curtain would have been this giant, snaking, gold vine with grape clusters that was above the curtain and below the roof line. And families, wealthy Jewish families, would sponsor sections of that pure gold grapevine. Uh, Josephus tells us that some of the grape clusters up there along the top were over five feet tall of pure gold. Okay? 
So you had to have some moolah to be able to sponsor something like that. And when the Jews finally decided, we're not waiting around for a Messiah anymore, we're just going to kick the Romans out on our own, and they revolted against Rome in A.D. 60 through A.D. 70, they, they minted their own coins. And instead of the image of Caesar, do you know what they put on their coins? The vine. Okay, so this is a big, important metaphor. Jesus says, I am the vine, my father is the gardener. In the past, if you were born to a Jewish family, boom, you were in like Flynn, you were connected. But now, see, in order to be connected, you've got to be connected to whom? Jesus. Jesus is the vine. And he says, if there's no fruit, if there's no fruit, it's cut off and burned. Now, in our community, we actually have... Uh, uh, we actually have a vineyard where you can see this going on. So if you take Crisman Wheel Road where it dead ends into the Kentucky River, you'll end up at the first vineyard, the, first, the site of the first commercial vineyard in the United States. They actually sent congratulatory wine to Thomas Jefferson when he won the election, okay? And so one of the things that can happen with the vines is they get what's called sucker shoots. And sucker shoots are these long, lush uh, branches that are all leaf but no grape. And what they do is they take that whole section and they go all the way to the branch and they snip the whole thing off because they, they're not going to have it. All that leaf's going to suck out all that energy and all those nutrients and, you know, not producing anything. Now, if Jesus says, if you bear fruit, you'll be pruned so that you can Bear, uh, produce even more fruit. Now, if you grew up in Baptist church like I did, you know what the fruit is he's talking about. Okay? Let's go to Galatians. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, if you're connected to Jesus it will produce in you these character traits and qualities that are just like Jesus. They're character traits of God, okay? And so Jesus hints on these themes. He talks about peace. He talks about love. He talks about these things in John 14, 15, 16, 17. So let's keep going, verses 5. Yes, I am the true vine, and you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. And when you produce much fruit, you're my true disciples. And this brings glory to my Father. So a true disciple produces what? A true disciple produces what? Fruit. And that fruit is these peace, joy, love. Okay? So... It's not a test of the relationship. It's not like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where you're on this trap door and you're either a good egg or a bad egg. It's not a test. It's a byproduct. In other words, if you are connected to Jesus, these things are produced in your life. Okay? It's a byproduct. And so Jesus has something to say. Remain in me. Abide in me. Follow me. Remain in me. Abide in me. Follow me. This command implies that you and I have a choice and have to exert some effort in remaining connected to Jesus so that we're remaining, abiding, and following. 
And then he gets to verses nine and following. And I want to unpack this. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Now, joy and happiness are not necessarily the same thing. They're not. Uh, I'm not going to give you Jesus other and you, right? I'm not going to do that. But I am going to uh, kind of clarify the difference between the two of them. And by the way, if you're surfing on the web, go to Compassion International on their website and, or just Google what's the difference between joy and happiness, Compassion International. They have one of the best summaries of it I've ever read theologically. And they're the ones who help children all around the world, okay? Joy it has this kind of purposeful choice about it. But joy has room for other emotions. You can have joy and be sad. You can have joy and be disappointed. You can have joy and be angry. You can have joy and feel shame. Joy has room for other emotions. It's complex, okay? But joy is ultimately rooted in hope. Hope is kind of the roots of joy. And so if you don't have hope, you can't have joy. They're connected in that way, in a profound way. Happiness, on the other hand, happiness, I don't know if you've noticed, but happiness will happen to you. You can work really hard to make yourself happy, and no matter how hard you try, you cannot make yourself happy. Happiness is always a byproduct of something else, a relationship, an experience, an activity, a gift. I mean, any number of things, right? And all of a sudden, you're happy. Happiness is also a little fickle. It's here today and gone tomorrow, and it doesn't seem to have an enduring quality to it. You can't take it to the bank that if you're happy today, you'll be happy tomorrow. And then the other thing about happiness is that there's this self-centered quality to it. In other words, the, the, the little barometer or, or gauge in my life about my happiness has to do with me. That has nothing to do with Jenny. It has everything to do with me. It's the weirdest thing about how that works out. And so it has this self-centered quality to it. Um, in order to understand, I think, what Jesus is talking about here, I want to go back to Luke 15, where we started at the beginning of the series. So Jesus is confronted by a group of people who are criticizing him and basically saying, Jesus, shame on you. Shame on you for hanging around those kind of people. Those people are not good enough to be counted among God's people. And we know for a fact that no tax collector ever will be good enough to be in God's house, right? And of course, Four chapters later is the story of Zacchaeus. But Jesus fires off three stories. Boom, boom, boom. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And when each of these is found, there's a word that's used. In the same way, there is more what? Joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 who were righteous and haven't strayed. In the same way, there is what? Joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And then we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Again, go to Hebrews 12. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the 
joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. In other words, do you see the hope quality to joy now? That hope is in a good ending. I don't know if you know this, but you're a storyteller at heart and you want there to be a good ending. And in that way, you're just like God, your heavenly father, okay? You're just like God, your heavenly father. Jesus on the cross, even though he was enduring the shame that all of us should have, right? Had what? He had joy awaiting him who is now at the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus didn't lose hope and neither should we, okay? And so in the rest of this section, uh, John has this to say, telling us what Jesus told his friends. And this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. No, you're my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you to go and produce everlasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my commandment. Love one another. Love, 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 love. I have some friends in Michigan. They have a bumper sticker that says love wins. It's because God wins. God wins. Okay? So I... If you're depressed, I want to beg, I want to implore, I want to just please do not lose hope. Do not give up hope. Please do not give up hope. Um, refuse to give up hope. Hope is the roots of joy. It's connected, okay? Um, and I want to say a couple of things to you if you are struggling with depression. One is God is not somehow disappointed in you because you're depressed, right? In Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist lays out that I can even go to the bed, I can make my bed in hell and you're there with me, okay? So God is not disappointed in you because you're depressed and God will not lose patience with you because of what you feel, which is why, again, two Sundays ago when we were talking about changing our thinking is so important right? So I want to ask a couple of questions in light of this passage. When in your life have you experienced depression? When in your life, for those of you younger, this may be a, what is this? I have no clue of what you talk about. If you've got some miles under your belt, (laughs) you probably have been down this road, okay? More importantly, what stories are you telling yourself? What stories are you telling yourself? Okay? So let me make this practical. And here's how to take this home. Okay? Jesus says that we will have his joy. One, if you think you're depressed, would you please seek treatment? This is your pastor telling you on a Sunday, if you think you're depressed, if you went through that and you were like, I had all 10 of the 10 symptoms, would you seek treatment, please? Please. Um, It could be circumstances in your life, a miscarriage, a death, a job loss. It could be a chemical imbalance, okay? But seek treatment. And And I have to say this, taking a prescription does not make you a failure as a Christian. 
If you're taking a prescription for depression, it does not make you a failure as a Christian any more than taking cholesterol medicine makes you a failure because somehow you can't manage what you're eating, right? Okay? So I need to say that. Jeremiah was a prophet uh, who had just tremendously challenging circumstances and a very hard message to deliver. And I think if Jeremiah were living today, he probably would be prescribed an antidepressant. He is consistently brought up as the, the depressed prophet. But you know what? Taking those pills probably would not lessen the feelings that he had of loneliness, the feelings that he had of defeat, and the, the, the insecurity that he struggled with on the inside, okay? Those are all identity issues, okay? So one, if you think you're depressed, seek treatment. This is your pastor telling you. You have permission to do this. Secondly, monitor the stories that you're telling yourself. Um, how could Jesus endure the cross? In part, it wasn't about him, but also he knew that wasn't the end. How could the disciples take beatings and rejection and, and some of the things that we see in the book of Acts? In part, it wasn't about them, but also they knew that wasn't the end of the story. You may need to remind yourself of the extended ending of this story. And I'll summarize it for you. God wins. God wins. He does. When it's all said and done, God is triumphant. I have not seen the end of the Avengers tale. It's out. Endgame is out. I don't know how it, how it ends. The last thing I saw was Infinity Wars. In Infinity Wars, half the people disappear. And there's this moment where Spidey, who was looking up to Tony Stark, disappears in Tony Stark's hands. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, even though I've kidded the youth about all of those people being dead, I know Spidey comes back. I know it. I just know it. You want to know why? Well, that's part of it, the second movie. But if... If the Avengers ended right here and that was the end of the story, would you buy any more tickets? No, because it's a bad story. And we know this on the inside. A few years ago, they made a movie of aliens invading Earth and the aliens won. It bombed at the box office. Duh, duh, we don't want to, like, if... If Minas Tirith in Lord of the Rings had fallen and the Horakai ran all over everything, we wouldn't go see that movie because it's in us to want a better ending. It's why in the next chapter, in John chapter six, uh, 16, Jesus talks more about joy, but he gives hints of the resurrection. He gives two or three hints of the resurrection because he's trying to connect this to his with, his, uh, with his friends and help his friends make this connection, okay? So three, serve. Uh, Greg Boyd, who's a pastor in Minnesota, says this. He says, serving is God's Prozac. What he means by that is one of the characteristics of being depressed is that there's this self-focus, and when you're serving, it kind of takes that focus off you, even if it's just for a window, Right? So serve, that's a practical way to combat these feelings on the inside. And lastly, lean in. That means the people in this room. We need each other, okay?
lean in. That means sometimes being honest. I'm struggling, right? Um, in the hundred acre wood, and this is a meme that makes social media rounds. Do they tell Eeyore, go away, Eeyore, you're not included? No, there's room for Eeyore. And he's included even though he's the bummer of the party. Knew I shouldn't have built a house there anyway. It's going to get washed away. Come on, Eeyore, coming to the table, right? So in a similar way, there's room for you here too, okay? We have room at Generations Community Church, but it's going to mean leaning in. Why is this important? Uh, I recognize that I have a lot of Eeyore in me. I, I know that, right? But a while back, a long time ago, I realized that part of what's going on in me is a longing for the end of the story. When I get a stick in my crawl about teachers being mistreated or injustice in the world or whatnot, it's because I want to see righteousness prevail. I want to see the good ending. Uh, when I'm praying for one of you because of a relationship that's gone south and I'm like, oh, come on, God, help them to see and help. Like, I'm wanting that good ending, okay? That's a longing in me. And C.S. Lewis knew this intuitively and he wrote about it extensively. It's why he talks about pilgrims and pilgrimage. There's a part of us that's always wanting to go home. In the Lord of the Rings, Frodo is always wanting to go back to the Shire, right? And it's not going back in time. It's going to the way the world should be. And that's what he's really articulating. Uh, Lewis also talked about it in terms of myth or the brokenness that's made whole. But really what's going on in that moment is I'm longing for things to be the way they should be. And that's what's going on in you. You're longing for things the way they should be, okay? Um, in this book, I don't know if you've read this cover to cover, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize some things. God makes a promise to Abraham, and then nothing happens for a very long time. God makes a promise to Moses, and then nothing happens for a very long time. God makes a promise to Joseph, and then... Nothing happens for a very long time. You're picking up on a theme here, okay? We in the church know what that is. We've been promised. Jesus said he's coming back. How many years has it been now? 2,000 years, and we wait. We wait. We're waiting. We're doing the same thing the Israelites did. We're doing the same thing Abraham did. We're doing the same thing that Moses did. We're doing the same thing that Joseph did. We're waiting for God to make good on what he's promised. And I'm going to tell you, gang, God will always do what he's promised. You can take it to the bank. God will always do what he's promised, always. Always.